Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hi there, uh, my name is Will, if you haven't met me before. Okay, hello. Um, yeah, my name is Will, and I'm married to Josie, who sat right there. Um, and she's been really instrumental in getting this preach together. Apparently, the first time I read it out, it sounded like I was trying to pick a fight with everyone in the front row. Um, so I've tried to work on smiling more, being less confrontational, and hopefully we're all going to get along really well. Um, now, last month, I met up with a friend of mine called Andy. We sat in the garden, which was the style of the time. We chatted for a while. Eventually, he went off to get his bus, uh, and I went to get some fried chicken. Um, but before he left, he gave me one piece of advice for this preach. He said, whatever you do, don't tell one of those totally irrelevant stories, the ones that go nowhere and have nothing to do with the preach, then force you to make a really abrupt transition into the real stuff. So Romans 6, we're continuing our series on resilient discipleship today. Um, What I'm actually going to talk about more than resilience is our identity in Christ. Because it's my firm belief that if we don't have this bedrock of our faith really clear in our minds and in our hearts, uh, then we're starting off at such a disadvantage when it comes to being resilient. Now, in the interests of disclosure, what I'm going to talk about today is based on two books. The first is this, the Bible, which probably didn't need disclosure, but is reassuring to all you theologians out there. Um, And the second one is this. It's called Live Like Jesus by Patti Putman. Um, Now, it feels like Christians are always recommending books to people. No matter what the context, no matter what problem you're going through is, um, you know, you're struggling in your prayer life, you stubbed your toe, you know there's a book for that, and it will be recommended to you. Um, but this one is genuinely transformational. Um, Putty is an incredible teacher, and this book contains so much more than I'm going to be able to cover in the 25 minutes that are already rapidly draining away. Um, so what are we going to do today? Well, we're going to look at the old creation, what we used to be. We're going to look at the new creation, which is what we are now. Uh, and then we're going to look at how we can apply that to our lives practically. But first, we're going to dive into Romans 6. First slide, please. Wow. Dead to sin, alive to God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so it seems pretty clear. It's actually the title of this little section of the chapter. This is all about being dead to sin and alive to God. And Paul uses the word sin a lot. I'm going to use it a lot today. Turns out it's actually really difficult, might surprise you, uh, to find a succinct and easy definition of the word sin. Um, But for the purposes of this preach today, what I'm talking about is an action or an identity which is turned away from God. Okay? It's a huge, big word, but basically what I'm meaning is anything that is turned away from God. So Paul is saying that those who believe in Jesus Christ are now dead to sin. It no longer lives in us. We are no longer enslaved to it. We're something else. We walk in the newness of life. We're something that Paul calls in Corinthians the new creation. Later in Romans, Paul describes us as more than conquerors in this new identity, as people who walk and think in accordance to the spirit and not to the flesh. That sounds great, doesn't it? Sign me up, Paul. He's like, we're walking around so holy, completely free from sin's power, walking in perfect union with Jesus and the Spirit, basically living like Paul does, which is to say, as Jesus did. So why don't I feel like that? Why don't I feel like a new creation? I don't know about you, but most of the time, I don't feel particularly dead to sin, and often not even very alive to Christ. I don't feel like I'm walking in the fullness of the good news, as excited to boast in Jesus as Paul is. Paul's faith is such a white-hot, do-anything-for-Jesus, bedrock-of-his-life kind of faith, exactly the kind of faith that I want to have. So why doesn't mine feel like that? And I know it's been touched upon in sermons in the last few months, but I really feel like we need to come at it head-on here, to be really honest with ourselves and with God. My faith life is not what I want it to be. I'm not living out the promises of the gospel in my everyday life. My day-to-day identity feels far more rooted in the world than in Jesus. And I'm thinking that lots of you watching might feel the same way I do. And we're not doing ourselves any favors. In fact, just the opposite, by pretending this isn't the case. One of the key themes of this whole series has been that resilience just doesn't come about on its own. That's not what it means. It requires challenge. If we're pretending we're not going through any challenges, how are we gonna reach a point of resilience? I think also this is an invitation to step back and get a fresh perspective on things. Rethink some of the things we've taken for granted or have got lost among the billions of thoughts going on up there. So I'm gonna suggest today that we take a step back and reevaluate something so foundational or at least I think it should be so foundational, and uplifting, and powerful, and exciting about our faith, which is our identity in Christ. So that's why I'm really excited to be looking at Romans 6, because that's what it's all about. Paul here is telling us exactly what it means to be a new creation, our identity in Christ, who we are. He just takes a bit of unpacking to fully, like, get at. So I think in order to make sense of this new creation thing, we need to know where we've come from what the old creation was, and why God has made us new. I think if we better understand that transformation and what it means for us, then we might get closer to that on-fire faith life that Paul and the other guys in the New Testament describe. Because Paul's working from the same gospel. 
If it's exciting him this much, if it's getting him this on fire, then there might be something that we're not quite getting or that we're missing. There might be more out there than we see. Now, I don't want to spend too much time dwelling on what we're saved from, so the old creation, because I think that part of the problem is that we spend like too much, well, not too much time, but a disproportionate amount of time focusing on what we've been saved from, focusing on that past, focusing on Jesus' death taking away our sins, but not on what the resurrection is doing. Sometimes it even feels like the resurrection is sidelined in our view of the gospel. It's like this thing that happens right at the end. He just like comes back to have a laugh and celebrate. Like, if, if this is the good news, if this is the best news, then we must be missing something really fundamental that Paul is talking about a lot here, guys. So with that noted, here is a potted history of our, capital O, our relationship with God. All right, we're in Genesis, and God's creating stuff left, right, and center. And all of it is good. But Adam and Eve, they're very good. I don't know what is the best thing you think you've ever created. Hopefully, at least some of you think it's your child or one of them. I'm a filmmaker, and I had a moment of real, like, geeky satisfaction this week when I made a really sturdy monitor mount for my camera out of some pieces of scuba equipment. I was pumped. Um, But amazingly, the satisfaction that you get from looking at your kids, or that I get from looking at my scuba monitor mount, that is not even close to the satisfaction that God gets from looking at you. Adam and Eve are the crown jewel of creation, the most majestic thing that God has ever made. He breathed his own spirit into them, knit them together in his own, with his own hands. Most importantly, he created them in his own image. And that's Genesis 127. It's going to come up now. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. This is image. In the same way that a statue is made in the image of the subject, it's meant as an accurate representation of that thing. When the rest of creation looks at us, they see him. What's also really important to note here is that the original creation is holy. To be human is not to be intrinsically broken or corrupted or anything like that. To be purely and originally human is to bear God's image and be righteous and without sin before him. However, we know, sadly, this doesn't last. We are given dominion over the earth in Genesis 1.26, and then we give it away to Satan. We're the ones who give him dominion over this world. Real, genuine power. Jesus later describes him as the ruler of this world and then as the father of old creations in John 8. Now, what the heck does that mean? Well, when Adam and Eve eat the apple, you know, they internalize their sin, literally. Remember that definition of sin? Adam's action in turning away from God becomes an identity, internalized, an identity that is turned away from him. It corrupts the identity that God has given him, and then they carry that down the generations. Being a sinner, capital S, is not an action. It's not doing sins. It's an identity. It's a nature, sin residing in us. That's the problem that Adam and Eve bring about. They can only duplicate what they are. Adam's the master copy. He's the original file. If he is corrupted then every copy that is made from him is corrupted too. Until, obviously, someone comes along who is not made from that original copy. And this is what's often termed original sin, but I think it's more helpful to describe it as a sin nature. 
Now, obviously, much more than that happens under the old creation. It's like three quarters of the whole Bible, but I think that's enough to get a context and to understand why the gospel, the good news, is actually so much better news than we think it is. All right, new creation time. If we flick back to Romans 5... Uh, if we flip back to Romans 5, yeah, um, we can get a head start on what Paul is trying to say about this. So, for just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There it is. We were made sinners by Adam's disobedience. Since we're all born of man and woman, we carry on his blueprint. That's why it's so important that Jesus was not conceived naturally. It's about interrupting that photocopying process. Finally, another creation has been made solely in God's image. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus didn't just come to forgive sins. That was already possible in the Old Testament through animal sacrifice. If you did the thing, you could be forgiven. It worked. Jesus came to give us a completely new identity, to be made righteous. Not that we might do righteous things or stop doing unrighteous things, although that's some of the fruits of it, but so that we are made righteous in our beings. And if we don't realize this, it's so easy to feel shame about ourselves. We think, why am I sinning? I must just be bad. I must have a battle raging inside me between what Jesus has done and who I really am, which is a sinner. This is so dangerous, guys. It's such a short throw from there to thinking that God can't possibly love me and they're just, just like despising our nature, despising who we think we are. But the good news is that none of that is true. It's categorically not true. It's not biblical. And Paul tells us that really clearly. Um, okay, so he gives us a bit more of a description of this new creation thing that we all are um, in Ephesians 4. The truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Doesn't that sound familiar? We're back in Genesis again. We're a reproduction of God and not Adam. We're the crown jewel of creation again, enjoying the most intimate relationship possible with God, just like Adam and Eve did before the fall. This is so important, guys. If there's only one thing you get from this sermon, I really hope there's more than one, but if there's just one, let it be this. Jesus didn't just die to forgive your sins, but to make you righteous and holy. You are a saint. When you feel bad about yourself, you're a saint. When you feel unlovable or insufficient, you're a saint. When you do sin behaviors, sin actions, you are a saint. That thing you just did or thought is not your identity or who you are. This is. And if you don't believe me, let's jump back into Romans 6 and see just how much Paul talks about this stuff. So this is verses 5 to 11. Here we go. Now, once we know what we're looking for, it's suddenly so much easier to follow this passage. If we start in verse 7. One who has died has been set free from sin. Well, good news, because we've died. Paul could not be more explicit about this. Our old self was crucified. We have died with Christ. Consider yourselves dead to sin. 
We've been included in Jesus' death, not in the warm, fuzzy, like, oh, I think he died for me, isn't that nice? No, not for us, as us, with us. We died with him. And if Jesus just came to forgive our sins, he would have accomplished it there and then. If sin was just a behavioral issue with a forgiveness solution, that would be enough. But he doesn't stop there. He comes back from the dead, and why? To change our nature. Just as we shared in the crucifixion, we also share in the resurrection. Again, Paul couldn't be more clear about this. Verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. This is the new creation. When we rose again, we did so as a new thing, one who has died to sin just as Paul describes. This is the gospel, guys. This is the really, really good news. Not just that we were forgiven, but that we have, past tense, been transformed. We no longer live under the authority of sin. That is gone. If we profess with our hearts that Jesus died and rose again, we have placed ourselves under his authority. We are not slaves to sin anymore. We are slaves to righteousness. We are saints and not sinners. So I'll return to the question I asked right at the start then. This all sounds great. Sign me up. I'm there. This is exactly how I want to live. But why don't I feel like that? Now I'm going to look at two reasons here and talk through some of the practical ways maybe we can sort of access them, get past these doubts that we're having, and embrace that new creation life. Number one, we don't understand our true identity. Hopefully we understand it slightly better than we did 20 minutes ago, or this hasn't really gone to plan. But understanding it with our heads is only half the battle. We have to let it sink. It can start with how we talk about ourselves, how we define ourselves. For one thing, we need to stop calling ourselves sinners, guys. There's a cliche around. I'm not saying it happens here, but it does. It's sort of like a mixture of a, of a hippie and a yuppie kind of vibe. And it walks around saying, like, I guess at the heart of it, apparently it's American as well. I guess, <laughs> I guess at the heart of it, what I am, I'm just a sinner. If I'm still a sinner now, then Jesus' mission failed. Like, this is just categorically not true. It's not biblical. It is harmful to think of ourselves like that. This is so crucial to our self-image. Words, our words, have real power. Proverbs 16:18 says, telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an axe. I actually found that quote on a Pinterest board, like written on a little pebble, like, like the most passive-aggressive present you could possibly give someone. Like, I really feel like the scripture is for you. Yeah. Um, hitting them with an axe, that's how harmful lies can be. So we need to make sure that we're speaking the truth over ourselves. I mean that literally. Try declaring your true identity daily. I think the root of this is the false idea that humility means tearing down our own righteousness. But Jesus died and defeated death to give you that righteousness. Don't tear it down. Humility is admitting that God knows better than we do. And he knows us better than we do. And what does he say about us? That we are holy and righteous in his sight. That is our true identity, and humility is about embracing it. We spend far too much time piecing together our identity from the wrong sources. For me, that's my job. 
I spend way more time defining myself as a filmmaker than I do as a saint. And when my job's going well, I go pretty well. But when it's not, I start comparing myself to others and feeling inadequate like that. And if we don't get our identity founded on something solid like Christ, on rock rather than sand, which is going to keep on going round in circles and up and down in our faith and our self-image. Imagine if we started identifying ourselves as saints. If I had introduced myself at the start of this, hi, I'm Will, and I'm a saint. And I was actually tempted to do that, but I thought, first preach, play it cool, play it cool. Um, now it might sound corny, but try it. Maybe just to yourself at first, maybe quietly, maybe not on the tube. But if we're humble enough to align ourselves with how God sees us, maybe we can start to renew our minds to align with his. And that's my neat segue to the second reason why we don't feel like new creations. And probably the one question you've been like screaming at yourself or at me since I started. If I'm no longer a sinner, well then why do I sin? Now, first off, we need to remind ourselves of the difference here between sin actions, which is the forgiveness stuff, and sin nature, the new creation stuff. And we know that our sin nature has become a righteous nature. We've just looked at it loads and loads of times. But if our nature is righteous, what is it in us? Why do we still want to sin sometimes? Well, Paul seems to be saying it's our minds. If we go back to our passage from Ephesians, we see Paul telling us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. He says the same in Romans chapter 12. Paul is adamant that we have been completely changed. Our nature has been completely changed to that of God's image. But our minds clearly haven't. One has been dealt with completely. One is still in a state of transformation. How do we avoid being conformed to this world where sin lives? We renew our minds. And this makes sense, doesn't it, of our experiences, guys. Even after we give our lives to Jesus, we don't just get like a mind transplant. Our mindset, the way we think and perceive, is still a product of the experiences we've had in this world. God doesn't transform that instantly like he does our nature, but he does provide us with the tools to do it. Paul tells us in Corinthians that no one can know God's thoughts or his mind, his mindset, except the spirit of God itself. Well, it's lucky for us then, we have that spirit living inside of us. If we want to renew our minds and align them with God's, we need to invest in spending time, quality time, quiet time with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm generally very bad at spending quiet time in any context of my life. As Josie will attest, in fact, probably other people in this room can attest too, um, the first thing I do when I walk into a room tends to be to put some music on. I love having like a constant soundtrack to everything that I'm doing. But recently, we decided to do a day of fasting, and I chose to fast listening to things to force myself into having silence. Now, I know that sounds like a really millennial Southwest London thing to fast. <laughs> oh, you're, you're giving up food? No, I'm giving up cloud-based music subscription services. Um, <laughs> But without that distraction, it felt like my mind was actually freer just to like drift onto God, to remember him, have a little chat with him. I wasn't like prostrating myself on the ground in reverence, but I was just remembering that God was there. And the more we do that, even in the little things, just think about him more, open up our minds, carve out some space for him to move into, he will go to work. 
And when our mindset is fully aligned with God's, it won't just be that we will have more willpower to resist temptation, but that we won't even desire sin in the first place. That is true freedom, guys. Not walking a tightrope, correcting left and right, not even desiring it in the first place. So now, as I give the band the sign, um, I'd like to just reflect on what we've been talking about so far. Now, I would have loved to have had twice as much time to spend on this. There is literally so much to be said about our identity in Christ and about Romans 6. Luckily, Kristen's going to come along next week and expand on some of this for us. But I really believe, guys, that understanding our righteous identity should be the starting point for how we approach ourselves and our relationship with God. So as we go on and go out, I want to invite everyone just to think and pray and embrace this identity that Jesus paid such a cost to win for us. Just remember it in your day. The more you do, the more it will start to stick in there. I am a saint. And that doesn't mean that you or I won't sin. But when we do, we do so as saints, remembering that sin no longer fits us. It doesn't suit us. And that we and God are on the same team. And he's the most powerful player in the universe. If we partner with him, we can renew our minds. Now, we're going to worship now, but I would love to take a moment here and reflect on where we're drawing our identity from. The parts of our identity that aren't coming from God. Maybe, like me, it's an identity built around success. Or maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's coming from shame or insecurity. If that's you, then there's people on the Church Online platform who would love to pray with you. Let's just take this time. Let's just take 30 seconds. The band's going to start doing their thing. Make room for God. Dwell on our righteous identity. Put on this new self. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.